0: Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24-7, 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know, and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast episode 10, where we're going to be looking at and discussing critical care infusions. Our focus is going to be on vasopressors, vasodilators, inotropes, and antihypertensives. So, for those of you that have been with me in previous podcast episodes, thank you so much for coming back for another episode. And for those of you that are brand new, welcome. The purpose of this podcast series is uh, to prepare you for the critical care CCRN exam. It's also a real great review uh, for critical care nursing in general. Each podcast episode can kind of be mixed and matched to meet your needs. So um, the reason I put together this program like I did is so that you're able to pick and choose those episodes that would best meet your needs in preparing for the exam. Now, I would really appreciate it, guys, if you would also head on out to my website, khoppypresents.com. And make sure that you uh, sign up to receive emails and notifications of upcoming podcasts. Also on my website, I have brain teasers, which are little, I don't know, quizlets, I guess you can call them, that will help you in practicing for the CCRN exam. So currently there is a brain teaser out there on anatomy, physiology, cardiac conduction and antiarrhythmic drug therapy. So the one I'm working on right now that you can expect soon is hemodynamics. So that will be posted soon. So without further ado, let's go ahead and start our content for today. So, we're going to start out taking a look at vasopressors that are commonly used in the critical care area. So, when we talk about vasopressors, I just like to start out with some general principles and then we'll go ahead and move on from there. First and foremost, when you take a look at vasopressors, they vasoconstrict typically because of one of two mechanisms. They either agonize, the effect of alpha-1 adrenergic receptors, or they stimulate vascular V1 receptors. Now, let's take a few minutes and discuss this. And in discussing it, we first have to uh, take a look at and just kind of review those terms agonize and antagonize, because that's certainly something that you will run into on the CCRN exam. When we talk about the term agonize, in other words, the drug is a receptor agonist, that means it stimulates, it engages with a receptor and it causes something to happen. Whereas when we talk about an antagonist, an antagonist will block something from happening. It will inhibit something from happening. So when we say that a vasopressor, a common vasopressor property is agonizing the effect of alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. That means it is engaging with those alpha-1 adrenergic receptors and causing vasoconstriction. Now, in order for us to understand that, though, we really have to have a, a firm handle on alpha and beta. And the way I like to go about explaining alpha and beta is for you to think about them as being employees of the sympathetic nervous system. So that's really who they kind of report to, if you will. So if you'll remember, the sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. So if we know that alpha and beta adrenergic receptors are employees of the sympathetic nervous system, then we know that when those receptors are engaged or stimulated, we pretty much expect to see a sympathetic response. Now, alpha-1 receptors, they are located in the vascular bed. You also find find them in the bronchi. And when alpha-1 receptors are stimulated, we see vascular constriction and bronchodilation. So we know then Anytime we give a drug that is an alpha-1 adrenergic receptor agonist, we know that we are going to vasoconstrict. Now, what are some examples of this that are commonly used in critical care? Norepinephrine is a big one. Epinephrine, dopamine, and then let's not forget phenylephrine as another alpha-1 agonist. Now, where there's an alpha-1, there's an alpha-2, and alpha-2 adrenergic receptors are found within the brainstem. And this is kind of a little bit different to think about, because when alpha-2 adrenergic receptors are stimulated, it blocks the outflow of norepinephrine. Now, if you'll remember, norepinephrine is a Uh, neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system. And it creates that whole sympathetic response. So if we give a drug that engages the alpha-2 receptor sites, which block the outflow of norepinephrine, they're essentially causing just the opposite of the sympathetic response. Because Think about norepinephrine. If left to itself, it would cause tachycardia and vasoconstriction. But in engaging the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor, if we block the outflow of norepinephrine, we're going to have vasodilation and we're also going to have um, a decrease in heart rate and possibly bradycardia or uh, sinus pauses, blocks, things along uh, that line. Now, I would like you to think, guys, about the one alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist that we give in in critical care. Now, just think about it for a second. All right, now I'm going to add another clue onto this, and I'm going to say that this alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist is very commonly used for sedating, sedating a patient. Think about it. What might that be? I'm going to give you one last clue here and say that this drug, this alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist, is something that we commonly use for sedation and it is pretty good at preventing delirium. Well, I'm sure you've already come in for a landing on this one, and you've chosen dexmedetomidine, which is also known as Presidex. So when you look up Presidex, it is described as an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist. And if you've ever given Presidex or dexmedetomidine before, you've seen that your patient's blood pressure can go down due to the vasodilation And also your patient's heart rate can go down and you can experience some, some pauses and some, some arrhythmias associated with Presidex or dexmedetomidine administration. So when we talk about alpha, okay, we just have alpha one, alpha two, and now we're going to go ahead and move right into talking about the vascular V1 receptors. Because remember we said there are two mechanisms by which we commonly produce vasoconstriction. Either we engage the alpha one adrenergic receptors or we go ahead and stimulate the V1 receptors. So when we talk about the V1 receptor, where is it located? Well, V1 receptors are found in vascular smooth muscle. And when these receptors are engaged, there's an increase of calcium entry into vascular smooth muscle. Now, if you'll remember, we talked about this with anatomy and physiology. We talked about the fact that calcium plays a key role in vascular tone. So of course, when we're talking about vascular tone, we're talking about the degree to which a vessel is vasoconstricted. So when these vascular V1 receptors are stimulated or agonized, we'll see an increase in calcium entry that will cause vasoconstriction because it increases vascular tone. Also, when we... Uh, stimulate those V1 receptors, we will see a decrease or an inhibition, if you will, of endogenous nitric oxide. Endogenous nitric oxide causes vasodilation. And so, of course, when we inhibit that, we produce vasoconstriction. The V1 receptors, when engaged, will also inhibit the release of atrial natriuretic peptide, which is a combined venous and arterial dilator. So you kind of get the common thread here that when we stimulate the V1 receptors, we are causing vascular constriction through inhibition of nitric oxide, atrial natriuretic peptide, and increasing entry of calcium into the smooth vascular muscle causing vasoconstriction. Another very important thing to keep in mind about vasopressin is that it increases catecholamine sensitivity. Now, let me explain this just a little bit. When we have somebody say, for example, on, let's just take norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is a catecholamine and it stimulates those alpha-1 receptors as we talked about. And we said that the catecholamines are things like norepinephrine and dopamine and phenylephrine. So they rely on the alpha and beta cells to work, catecholamines do. That's why those receptors are called alpha and beta adrenergic receptors. The problem is, though, is when you have somebody that is on, let's say, norepinephrine, and they are septic, after a while, and sometimes it's even a short while, those vasopressors do not work because in a septic environment, our body's endogenous catecholamine and the effect of catecholamines is suppressed. So by incorporating something like a V1 receptor agonist, like vasopressin is our example here, we actually are focusing on a different modality, a different way to produce vasoconstriction. And by kind of, you know, not depending upon those catecholamines, what we see is we can get vasoconstriction using another mechanism so that those receptors that are down-regulated, the catecholamine receptors that are down-regulated during uh, uh, sepsis have the ability to turn around. And so we see an increase in catecholamine sensitivity when we're focusing on the V1 receptors. So that's an important use and an important clinical application of vasopressin In the treatment of septic shock. So, we talked about the patient uh, that was receiving an alpha 1 adrenergic receptor um, agonist. We talked about the V1 receptor agonist and how they work. We'll be talking about vasopressin more in just a moment. I do want to finish off our receptor talk, though, in talking a little bit about beta receptors because you know for completeness where there's alpha there's beta so let's just go ahead and cover these receptors as well because they are going to become increasingly important as we move forward so when we talk about beta receptors we have two types we have beta 1 and beta 2 their middle name is also adrenergic so that's the same middle name as the alpha receptors so you know then that the beta receptors are employees, if you will, of the sympathetic nervous system. The beta one receptors are found on the heart. And so therefore, when you give a beta one adrenergic receptor agonist, we are going to have sympathetic effects on the heart. So we will see an increase in heart rate, an increase in contractility, a c- increase in conduction velocity, so increase in movement of impulses from the atria down to the ventricle. And all of that is going to cause an increase in myocardial oxygen consumption. And the abbreviation for that is MVO2, which literally stands for, because the V has a little dot over it, the M stands for myocardial volume consumed of oxygen is what MVO2 stands for. Now beta 2, those receptors are found in the vascular bed and bronchi. And so when beta 2 is stimulated, we are going to see the um, we're going to see bronchodilation and we're going to also see vascular dilation with beta 2. And one of the things that I always like to discuss at this point is that nobody knows beta two better than a respiratory therapist that is walking into your patient's room about ready to give your patient some albuterol. Albuterol is a beta two adrenergic receptor agonist. And it also has some beta 1 effects. So just think about it at the bedside, guys. You know, respiratory therapy comes in with their albuterol. They give the patient an albuterol treatment, and, you know, we're all glad that the patient's breathing better, their sats are looking better, their lungs are sounding better. But then there's a little spin off effect of that, and that is we see on the monitor. Our beta 1 effect, our beta 1 stimulation as our patient develops tachycardia associated with their respiratory treatment. So, now let's get into some very specific uh, vasoconstrictors in terms of, you know, uh, properties and dosages and things of that nature. Our first drug that has vasoconstrictive uh, properties is dopamine. Now, you don't see dopamine used much anymore compared to uh, days gone by or days in the past, but dopamine is definitely a precursor of norepinephrine. It does have vasoconstrictive properties. We know it also to be a neurotransmitter of both the central and peripheral nervous system. Now, the reason that we don't see dopamine used as much now as we have in the past is that dopamine is infamous for causing tachycardia. So sometimes we felt like we were shooting ourselves in the foot by using dopamine because while we increase pressure, we increase the patient's heart rate, um, sometimes to real dangerous levels. So if you had a patient who was bradycardic, though, and hypotensive, and euvolemic, we've given them enough volume and we still need to incorporate a vasoconstrictor, well then dopamine may indeed be a consideration. So the indications then for dopamine, hypotension with signs and symptoms of shock, particularly in somebody that's bradycardic, we always want to make sure before we pull a, um, vasoconstrictor out of our arsenal, uh, that our patient is adequately uh, volume resuscitated. Now, dopamine is going to have different actions based on the dosage range. And one of the things that I noticed when I took the CCRN exam is they really want you to know clinical application of the dosages of the drug that you're giving. Let me explain this to you. For example, if they would ask a question like your patient is receiving six mics per kilo per minute of dopamine, what is the anticipated physiologic effect? Or they might say, what benefit is your patient deriving from dopamine at that dosage range? So it's all about the guy in the bed as it should be and the benefit that the patient is receiving from the drug dose that you are giving. So when we talk about dopamine, it has some different effects based on the dosage range. At low dose, one to three mics per kilo per minute, what we see is dilation of the dopaminergic bed because the dopaminergic receptors are activated, resulting in increased renal, mesenteric, and cerebral circulation. Some people... Uh, particularly people that have been in healthcare a long time, know this to be a renal dose of dopamine. Well, renal dose dopamine isn't used anymore. And there were many randomized clinical trials that looked at low dose dopamine and whether it was useful in being able to ward off renal failure or prevent the progression of renal failure. It just really didn't do what we intended for it to do. And and in some cases, uh, there were reports that renal dose dopamine caused um, bowel ischemia by uh, constricting the splenic vessels, which caused ischemic bowel. So all in all, over the years, Um, we have learned to not be using low-dose dopamine for renal perfusion. Now, again, with that said, sometimes you still see some people um, employing low-dose dopamine, but I'm just saying in general, um, it's not something that we see used that much anymore. Intermediate dose is about 3 or 4 mics per kilo per minute to 10 mics per kilo per minute. And that's where we have beta receptors being stimulated. And so our primary beneficial effect at that dosage range is increased inotropy. And you'll remember from before that uh, inotropy is contractility. However, the inotropic response we get with mid-dose dopamine is pretty modest when compared to dobutamine or dobutrex. And we'll be looking at that drug in just a little bit. High doses of dopamine are those doses that are 10 mics per kilo per minute or greater. And that's where we see alpha being stimulated, alpha one particularly, and we see vasoconstriction. And now we have to be ever so mindful of, you know, extremities and toes and fingers and perfusion distally, really important. And the higher we go on the dopamine, as we're approaching 20 mics per kilo per minute, which we never really want to go there, we want to switch to another drug first, but we can have constriction of flow to uh, the renal arteries. And now you see acute kidney injury associated with that. So uh, we really don't want to be jacking up that dose too high. So, uh, and then we also want to be measuring peripheral perfusion. We want to be assessing it. We also want to make very sure that we are administering catecholamines into a central line whenever possible. Now I get it that it's sometimes not feasible to get a central line in right away. That's kind of the reality of it in which case we have to make sure that we use a large vessel in the arm Uh, you would never give dopamine into a hand or a wrist or a foot, Um, because of its vasoconstrictive properties, it can wind up causing what's known as purple glove syndrome and people can wind up losing fingers as a result. So definitely the central line should be forthcoming, but as a Hail Mary, we can start, uh, dopamine in a peripheral larger vessel as the central line is, uh, soon to come. Again, a reminder, always consider volume replacement first, fill up the tank first. Now, as we're approaching the higher dosage range up toward, you know, 15 plus mics per kilo per minute of dopamine, we need to be thinking about incorporating, uh, another drug changing to a different drug. We've got to do something. So, Levofed or norepinephrine is another drug of choice that may be of consideration at that point. In fact, where we are right now is we typically will take norepinephrine off the shelf long before we will consider dopamine as a vasopressing agent. The exception being when the patient is bradycardic, then dopamine's a little bit better. So, precautions related to dopamine use in patients with hypovolemia only after you have replaced volume and they're still hypotensive and bradycardic. It does have proarrhythmic potential because it does create a tachycardia. Monitor for profound vasoconstriction. Dopamine's also inactivated in any kind of alkaline solution. So any kind of bicarb or alkaline uh, related thing. Also, acidosis decreases the effectiveness of not only dopamine, but any kind of catecholamine that you give. So if your pH is less than 7.2, you are not going to be getting the bang for your buck out of your catecholamine. And then last but not least, remember... Use a central line whenever possible. And if you have to do the Hail Mary approach and put it in peripherally, that central line needs to be coming soon. And in the meantime, that site needs to be assessed and documented on a minimum of every one hour according to best practice guidelines. So let's take a look at a situation in which you do have extravasation of a catecholamine into surrounding tissues. My first question to you is what would that area look like? You know, because when we think about extravasation, we think about things getting puffy and red, inflamed and so on. But if you think about it for a second, if we're, if we have a catecholamine that extravasates into surrounding tissues we're gonna see a blanch effect. We're gonna see a blanch effect around the insertion site. My second question to you is what do we use? Well, we use fentolamine or regitine, and we actually use an intradermal needle in order to inject fentolamine um, around the periphery of the extravasation. Phentolamine is a vasodilator. So as a general rule, and again, you want to follow whatever your hospital protocol is, you're infiltrating the area as soon as possible with 5 to 10 milligrams of phentolamine that is diluted in about 15 mLs of normal saline. So we want to make sure and use a fine needle in order to infiltrate liberally throughout the area. The next drug that we're going to take a look at that has vasopressive properties is norepinephrine, also known as levophed. You know, it's funny because levophed has been around for a long time and it comes and goes in terms of being popular. And it has now been popular for quite some time. So it's really our our go-to vasopressor. If, um, you know, based on the, this recurrent recording, which is, uh, March of 2021, you look at the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, uh, they do recommend norepinephrine as being the first line vasopressor for use in patients with septic shock, where we have repleted volume and, or we're in the midst of repeating, uh, repleting volume and the patient, um, requires a vasopressor. So it is very, very popular. And I think one of the the things that helped it gain a lot of popularity is the fact that it's not as known to cause the same kind of tachycardias as we see with dopamine. Although keep in mind, it is a catecholamine and it's going to stimulate beta one, but it stimulates beta one to a much lesser extent than does dopamine. So indications for norepinephrine, acute hypotension, which persists after adequate volume replacement, and it can also be as an adjunct treatment uh, of profound hypotension with uh, cardiac arrest and patients with septic shock. So again, um, a catecholamine needing to be infused into a Uh, central line whenever possible. So its main effect is alpha-1 adrenergic stimulation. So it's a potent alpha-1 adrenergic agonist with much less pronounced effects on beta-1. So, you know, it's more heart rate friendly. So the way it increases blood pressure we know is through vasoconstriction. Now, when you look at your cardiac output and cardiac index, when you have a patient on norepinephrine, you know, you can see a variety of things that really are dependent upon the ability of that left ventricle to eject against increased constriction. For example, if you have somebody that's had multiple infarcts and doesn't have very much functional left ventricle left and you vasoconstrict so that that ventricle has to push out against higher resistance, now you're going to have a cardiac output and index that are going to drop. And so you'll find yourself needing to include an inotrope for that patient in order to try and enhance contractility to push out against that increased constriction in your hypotensive patient. Now, very commonly, when we're talking about a dosage range, we're talking about 0.01 0.01 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute um, with 0.5 mics per kilo per minute being usually an acceptable maximum dose for norepinephrine. Um, again, just like all catecholamines, we don't want to be using this in anything that's alkaline, doesn't it, it won't tolerate being piggybacked. Uh, onto a line that has anything alkaline in it. Now, let's turn our sights then from norepinephrine over to vasopressin. Because again, if you look at the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, they talk about using norepinephrine and epinephrine as vasoconstrictors, and then also vasopressin as a vasoconstrictor is incorporated. Now, remember, vasopressin uses an entirely different mechanism to produce vasoconstriction, unlike our catecholamine infusions like norepinephrine and epinephrine, which really engage those alpha receptors. Vasopressin, on the other hand, engages the V1 receptors. And we said that the V1 receptors make more calcium available At the vascular level, they increase the influx of calcium in order to increase vascular tone, thereby, of course, producing vasoconstriction. So um, one of the things that I want to bring up here when we talk about uh, vasopressin is there's a couple of different uses for vasopressin. We're very familiar with using vasopressin in the critical care setting for hypotension in the septic patient, especially when the patient becomes uh, maxed out or on the higher dosage end of norepinephrine. And that typical dose is 0.01 to 0.04 units per minute. Now, again, in a central line is the uh, best practiced standard. What we'll come to see when we get into the GI section and we start talking about bleeding esophageal varices, we can see that vasopressin, while rarely used, it still can be incorporated into the treatment of bleeding esophageal varices because of its ability to vasoconstrict uh, the GI vessels that supply the bleed. But what I'm going to point out here, because the rest of it will be covered when we get to GI, what I want to point out here is when vasopressin is used for that purpose, bleeding esophageal varices, I want you to take note that the typical dose is 0.2 to 0.4 units per minute a much, much higher dose than when we're talking 0.01 to 0.04 units per minute. we'll be getting into that a whole lot more when we get to GI. But since we were talking about vasopressin, I thought it would be a good time, a good thing to mention at this time. So what are some of the adverse effects of vasopressin? Um, certainly, you know, you're giving ADH, right? So fluid retention is certainly one, um, at doses greater than 0.04 units per minute. You could have things like arrhythmias, decreased cardiac output, chest pain, and even an MI. And that's why we'll come to talk about the fact that when you have doses greater than 0.04 units per minute, one of the things that should be considered, especially in somebody with underlying cardiovascular disease is that nitroglycerin be used as an adjunct to therapy. So more on that later. Next, we're going to talk about phenylephrine, also known as neosinephrine. It is a pure alpha-1 adrenergic stimulant. And so primarily what we see as an effect of that is we see vascular effects. We see increase in blood pressure. We can see increase in PA pressures. We can even see a coronary and renal vasoconstriction. And in some patients, we may even see a reflex bradycardia that's mediated through the vagus nerve. So initial dose, 100 to 180 micrograms per minute and of course uh, increase to achieve the desired effect with a maintenance dose being somewhere between 40 and 60 micrograms per minute. It has an immediate effect and that's why people, especially anesthesia, seems to love phenylephrine and its effects last up to about 20 minutes after a dose or an infusion has been discontinued. Side effects are very similar to norepinephrine. So the next drug class we're going to talk about is the inotrope drug class. And as you know, the term inotrope means contractility. So something that increases inotropy, that means it increases contractility. And something that decreases inotropy means that it decreases contractility. So our first drug is dobutamine, also known as Dobutrax. It's a synthetic catecholamine, kind of chemically related to isoprel. Isoprel isoproteranol is its cousin, if you will. So the primary effect of dobutamine is beta-1, beta-1 receptor agonism. So we have an increase in cardiac contractility. It does also have some mild beta two effects. And if you'll remember, we said that beta two produces vasodilation. So that's something that we have to be aware of. And dobutamine is not a drug that we would ever use to bring up somebody's blood pressure. We wouldn't start dobutamine and say, increase it to try and achieve a blood pressure of such and such, or a mean arterial pressure over 65, because it does have the mild um, beta-2 effect, meaning that it does vasodilate. Our primary parameter that we're looking at with dobutamine is cardiac index. And that's what we, we use in order to titrate dobutamine. So we may not have a PA catheter. We may not be using uh, flow track or any other device that tells us about stroke volume or cardiac index. What we are looking at overall guys is we're looking at perfusion is the dobutamine increasing perfusion. It increases perfusion by improving stroke volume, the amount of volume put out per contraction. So, there's lots of ways that we look at that right, guys. We look at cognition, we look at skin warmth and and um color, we look at urine output. These are all things, including heart rate, that tell us about overall. Perfusion. Now again, uh, cardiac index would be a very nice objective measure, and stroke volume as well, in order to see if dobutamine is doing what it's supposed to. So it stands to reason then that dobutamine would be indicated in somebody where we need increased inotropy on the part of the ventricle, Um, and so tachycardia is certainly, since it's a beta one, it certainly can be uh, one of the complications of dobutamine. And so we want to make sure that as we go up on the dobutamine, that we don't want to be shooting ourselves in the foot and creating a tachycardia that actually is offsetting the beneficial effects that we're receiving by the increase in stroke volume. So it's the preferred inotropic agent for the acute management of low output states due to systolic heart failure, guys, right? Because it's helping with output, not diastolic heart failure. Diastolic heart failure has to do with problems with the ventricles being able to relax and fill normally. So you would not be using dobutamine for diastolic dysfunction. So dobutamine is effective for either sided type of heart failure, either right sided or left sided heart failure. And you certainly could use dobutamine in a shock patient, but it wouldn't be used as monotherapy. So it wouldn't be used as a standalone agent in a patient in shock simply because it has that dilated dilating property. So in a shock patient, we would be using it for its ability to increase stroke volume and cardiac index, but will likely need to be incorporating a vasoconstrictor to go along with it. Now the infusion typically started somewhere around 2.5 to 5 mics per kilo per minute. And then titrated to the desired effect. And we talked about what that is, an increase in perfusion. So 2 to 20 mics per kilo per minute is the general dosage range. Once again, it is part of the catecholamine family. And catecholamines don't like to be infused in anything that's alkaline. So it can't be partnered with any kind of IV solution that is alkaline. Another thing that we find with dobutamine is that beta receptors can become downregulated after 72 hours of continuous use of dobutamine. So now remember what happens when a receptor becomes downregulated. It means you're not going to get the same bang for your buck in terms of cardiac performance. Now there's one last thing I want to talk about when it comes to dobutamine And that is the patient, let's say that comes in with heart failure and you have this whole arsenal of drugs that you're going to be giving to a patient. And let's say this patient that comes in with heart failure is in atrial fib, which is a very, very common presentation. And the atrial fib is it's pretty fast. You know, we've got a rate of 140s, 150s, and, uh, this patient is not doing well. And you've got this whole big long list of drugs that you're going to be giving the patient, uh, which include things like you're going to bolus with Cardizem, start a Cardizem drip. You're going to give Lasix, you're going to give some morphine and you're going to start the patient on dobutamine. Well, I just want to point out here Your choice of drugs to start out with is extremely important. So thinking aside of the morphine and the Lasix, which of course you're going to get on board, when it comes down to diltiazem and dobutamine, it's really very important to give the diltiazem first. And let's discuss why that is. We said that dobutamine is a beta agent. It stimulates beta one. That's its primary claim to fame is that it stimulates beta one. And then let's go back and say beta one will increase contractility. It may increase heart rate, and it also is going to increase conduction velocity. And we find what we defined conduction velocity as the speed with which Impulses move from the atria down to the ventricles. Now, I want you to think this patient came in with atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. I also want you to think of the, about the fact that in atrial fibrillation, you have anywhere from 300 to 500 impulses in the atria that are firing like crazy, causing the atria to just basically be sitting there and quivering. So, if you start out with dobutamine. And in your mind, you're thinking you're going to increase cardiac output. Let's talk about what's going to happen. Being a pure beta stimulator, when you give dobutamine to somebody in atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response, because of that beta one stimulation, you are actually going to be increasing the number of impulses that get from the atria, through the AV node and down to the ventricles. So essentially you're going to be making the ventricular response rate to the patient's atrial fibrillation even worse. This is not a good plan, right? So you don't want to start dobutamine in uncontrolled atrial fib until you have some drug on board that will provide for some AV nodal suppression. And in this particular case study, I said that this patient came in with an arsenal of orders, which also included, um, bolusing the patient with Cardizem and starting a Cardizem drip. Important to get the Cardizem on board first, because that is going to offer you the AV nodal suppression that you need before you start the dobutamine, because the dobutamine is going to increase conduction velocity. And you know, you're going to wind up in trouble unless you have some AV nodal suppression in place. So again, the, the take home point here is an uncontrolled atrial fib. Do not start dobutamine unless you have some drug on board that offers the patient some AV nodal suppression. So drugs that come to mind include things like diltiazem or amiodarone, or even DIG offers some AV nodal suppression. So now what we're going to do is we're going to turn our sights over to epinephrine, epinephrine infusion. And we know that the effects of epi, of course, are going to be very dose dependent. We can have cardiac effects representing beta stimulation. So we would get an increase in contraction and heart rate. And we would also have vascular effects of epinephrine, which include increase in SVR, increase in blood pressure, and even some renal arterial constriction. From a pulmonary side with epinephrine, we get bronchodilation. So the indication for an IV infusion of epinephrine would include low cardiac output states, cardiac arrest, shock states, and anaphylaxis. Some of the side effects just stand to reason, of course. Restlessness, anxiety, tachyarrhythmias are a few examples of what we might encounter. Let's next talk about our other major inotrope that we use. Let's say we have somebody on dobutamine for a while, and the dobutamine's just not giving us the outcome we want. The next natural step very commonly is milrinone, which is also known as primacore. And it is a positive inotrope as well as a vasodilator. Again, it has a very different mode of action than dobutamine. We said dobutamine is a beta one agonist. Milrinone does not do that. Milrinone is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And so it's actually called an inodilator because you get a couple of real nice effects from milrinone. You get the inotropy, so the increase in contractility, and you also get the vasodilating properties as well. So you get some nice preload and afterload reduction out of milrinone. So the indications for milrinone include low cardiac output states, acute heart failure, failure, and cardiomyopathy. Side effects include arrhythmias. It is arrhythmogenic. Uh, Thrombocytopenia, hypokalemia are some additional possibilities. Now, the thing about milrinone that makes it so different Uh, from any of our other titratable drugs is that milrinone has a long half-life. And so because of that long half-life, we give a loading dose and then we start a maintenance infusion. And we watch to see if perfusion increases, always keeping in mind being an inodilator that we have to watch for hypotension as a possibility. But we are not like playing with this to find the sweet spot like we so love in critical care, going up a little bit on this and down a little bit on that in order to find, you know, the exact right perfusion sweet spot. We're not doing that with Milrinone because the half-life is way too long. And so what we see is we give a loading dose that's commonly 50 to 75 mics per kilo, watching for hypotension, administering it very slowly, and then starting a maintenance infusion. And that dosage range is typically 0.375 to 0.75 mics per kilo per minute. So what we're going to do then is we're going to watch over time as to how the patient responds to this, whether our cardiac index goes up, whether our perfusion indicators go up, The onset of action is about five to 15 minutes for milrinone, but guys, the half-life for this drug is two to three hours. So you're not playing around with this drug and going up and down like we have been with other types of titratables that have a half-life that's much, much shorter. Furthermore, with milrinone, severe CHF prolongs half-life and renal impairment significantly increases half-life. Well, guys, think about this logically. Who are we most likely to use milrinone on? We are most likely to use milrinone on a patient that has left-sided heart failure, and just as an aside, they typically have renal impairment. So the very patient that we're going to use milrinone on is the type of patient in which that half-life is going to be very prolonged. So the titrations of milrinone are very prescriptive based on you know, what the cardiologist or the provider orders. It's not something that we at the bedside are playing around with and going up and down and titrating every you know, few minutes or so like we can with many of our other drugs. So the adverse effects, hypotension's a big one, especially if somebody is on the volume depleted side. We said cardiac arrhythmias also uh, are a potential. And if you start this stuff with atrial fib, you may get an increase in ventricular response rate as well. Next, guys, we're going to turn our sights over to agents that vasodilate we're going to start out with nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is a primarily a coronary artery and venous dilator. Unless you have the patient on a dose that is greater than one mic per kilo per minute, then we will have arterial uh, dilation of systemic arteries. So the effects are primarily venous and coronary. So be careful on the CCRN. Don't choose any kind of option which describes nitroglycerin as being a balanced dilator because it is not a balanced dilator. It is primarily a venous dilator and to a lesser extent, a systemic dilator at high doses. At any dosage range, I always tell people you can practically wave it over the bed and the coronaries dilate. So coronary and venous. Why do we give nitroglycerin? Well, it's a nice dilator. It has some antiplatelet activity. It reduces myocardial oxygen consumption and preload as a big one in higher doses. It can also reduce afterload. And that coronary perfusion uh, enhancement is really, it's claim to fame. And we know that nitroglycerin can be given in a whole variety of different forms, whether you're talking about IV or PO or topical, sublingual, or even an oral spray. Now nitroglycerin is the drug of choice in unstable angina or heart failure associated with an acute MI. Um, It also works out very nice for preload reduction and increase in coronary artery perfusion for heart failure patients. It also can be used as adjunct therapy in hypertensive uh, urgency in a patient with acute coronary syndrome. And we know it definitely has a prophylactic use and a long-term therapy use for patients with recurrent angina. Now it's common on the exam to find a, a question having to do with the Administration of IV nitroglycerin, and that is that it must be mixed in a glass bottle because the plastic of an IV bag will absorb the nitroglycerin. The onset of nitroglycerin IV is immediate. And actually, when you talk about titrating the drip, it can be titrated at five to ten mics per minute intervals every three to five minutes. And the typical maximum dosage is 200 mics per minute. So while you're titrating nitroglycerin, of course, you have to monitor the patient's blood pressure closely. Um, It can be titrated to a few things. I mean, we can titrate nitroglycerin to chest pain. And so we go up on the nitroglycerin and hoping that the chest pain is relieved. We can also increase the nitroglycerin for preload reduction and using our pulmonary artery diastolic or our wedge pressure, stroke volume indicators to see if we're getting better stroke volume and cardiac index as a result of the preload reducing effects of nitroglycerin. In terms of side effects, hypotension, certainly a possibility more prominent in the elderly. If the patient is taking drugs for erectile dysfunction, we might have some very pronounced hypotension as a result. Um, Orthostatic hypotension, headache is also a very common side effect. Another drug we use for vasodilation that is a balanced dilator is nitroprusside. Nitroprusside is effective almost immediately. It will dilate both arteries and veins pretty much equally, so it can be referred to as a balanced dilator. Now, there are a lot of problems around using nitroprusside. First of all, it is rapidly converted into thiocyanate, um, which breaks down to cyanide. So if we have a patient on nitroprusside who has bad kidneys, or they're on it for a while, or a higher dosage, we could have cyanide toxicity as a potential threat to the patient. Uh, some facilities try to prevent that by adding sodium thiosulfate, uh, sodium thiosulfate to the bag in order to prevent cyanide toxicity. However, really the goal when somebody is on nipride is to get them off nipride, to get them on other drugs that are safer drugs, to be able to get them off the nipride. Another problem with nipride is the fact that you can develop a right-to-left intrapulmonary shunt with these patients. You see it about 10% of the time. And what a right-to-left intrapulmonary shunt is, is where blood leaves the right side of the heart and gets back to the left side of the heart without ever getting fully oxygenated. And the reason for that is, is because nipride produces um, pulmonary vascular vasodilation. And the way that you would pick up on that shunt is you would start to see your pulse ox trending, trending down for no apparent reason. So it stands to reason then that nipride would be used in patients, for example, it could be an option uh, for patients with hypertensive urgency or hypertensive emergency, but not in any patient that comes in with an acute myocardial infarction. That is because nitroprusside is known to produce what's called coronary steel not steal the metal, steal like I'm stealing from you. And what we see is that nitroprusside will dilate coronary arteries that are larger at the expense of the collaterals. So by dilating the larger coronaries, it kind of steals some of the flow away from some of the collateral vessels. So if somebody would come in with acute MI and they had hypertension, Nitropresside would not be the drug that we would choose simply because if you've worked with cardiac patients at all, you know that a lot of those patients are depending upon their collateral circulation. So we don't want to steal any flow away by drawing it toward uh, dilating the larger vessels. Now, because it's very potent and because it's rapid onset, we definitely need an intraarterial line when we have somebody that's receiving Nipride. So, the indications for Nipride include hypertensive emergency, um, or it can be used as an adjunct for preload and afterload reduction in patients with heart failure, for example. You need to keep in mind with nipride infusion that the bag must be covered because it is very, very light sensitive and it is stable for 24 hours. So the bag needs to be changed every 24 hours. The onset of action also, another thing to keep in mind, is pretty much instantaneous. And the duration of action once you turn off the drip is you know, about one to five minutes. A typical dosage range um, around 0.1 to 0.3 mics per kilo per minute is a pretty safe dosage range. Um, definitely, the parameter is all the way up to 10 mics per kilo per minute, but you can just imagine as you get to higher and higher doses of nipride, you are running the risk in a big way of cyanide intoxication. So major adjustments in nipride are going to give you major effects when you titrate. In terms of side effects, hypotension is the big one. Um, Make sure that your patient has adequate volume on board. We talked about cyanide intoxication and we would see uh, a trend down in the pulse ox. We would also see central nervous system signs of cyanide intoxication. Methemoglobinemia is another possibility with nipride. And not only would you see a downward trend in the patient's um, pulse ox, but when you draw the patient's blood, you would see that the blood takes on this chocolatey red kind of appearance. And so that is methemoglobin and methemoglobinemia, if you'll remember, is where the hemoglobin molecule is unable to bind with oxygen normally. Now, in terms of additional dilators, we have nicardipine, which is cardine. It is a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, which means that it will dilate arteries and veins, but it will not affect conduction. So, Nicardipine actually has gained a lot of popularity over the years as nitroprusside has fallen from popularity as of this recording in 2021. Nicardipine is used for hypertensive urgency or crisis or the immediate need of afterload reduction. The infusion rate 5 to 15 milligrams per hour titrated to a desired effect. Now keep in mind, the half-life of nicardipine is rather long as well, about 15 to 45 minutes. It's considered to be more of a user-friendly type of vasodilator when compared to nitroprusside. The other thing you have to keep in mind about nicardipine is that it is caustic to the vessels. So very important to think about giving it in a central line whenever possible. Next, let's get on to beta blockers as dilators. We know beta blockers because their name ends in alol, which is O-L-O-L. And beta blockers produce their vasodilating properties by inhibiting renin. And so we actually have two types of beta blockers. We have the cardioselective beta blockers and the non-cardioselective beta blockers. What that means is, is, you know, going back to what we talked about, about the beta receptors before a cardioselective beta blocker, such as metoprolol or atenolol, for example, they will just block the beta one adrenergic receptors Whereas the non-cardioselective beta blockers, case in point, propranolol, which is a very old beta blocker, it will block both beta one, but it'll also uh, block beta two. And remember, beta two receptors produce bronchodilation. So if you block beta two receptors in somebody that has a reactive airway disease like asthma, you could cause bronchospasm in those people. Last but not least, we have the ACEs and ARBs. The ACEs and ARBs, ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor, and the ARBs stand for angiotensin receptor blockers. So both of these classes are used for preload reduction, afterload reduction, They also reduce aldosterone, which is really a nice thing in heart failure patients, because if you'll remember that aldosterone hangs on to sodium, and whenever you hang on to sodium, you're going to hang on to fluid, and that's like the last thing a patient with heart failure needs. Also, the ACEs and ARBs um, inhibit ventricular remodeling. So ventricular remodeling is reduced and, you know, think about what that is. When a person has uh, an MI, for example, and the wall starts to thin and you have these little myocytes that develop the fibrous scar and there's increased collagen in between the myocytes, which causes the heart to become very stiff. Another big problem with remodeling is that normally the heart is shaped like a bullet or like a sphere. And so when remodeling occurs, the whole shape of the ventricle changes and becomes more like a cylinder. And then we tag names on it like dilated cardiomyopathy. So in terms of the ACEs and the ARBs, they are able to either inhibit the conversion of angiotensin-1 into angiotensin-2 in the case of the ACEs, the ACE inhibitors, or they can prevent angiotensin-2 from linking up at its binding site. And that of course would be the angiotensin receptor blockers. In either way, by blocking angiotensin-2, these drug classes will produce arterial and venous dilation and diuresis, both excellent effects for the patient with left-sided heart failure. And we'll be looking at ACEs and ARBs again when we start talking about the patient that presents with heart failure. Well, guys, you have made it through episode number 10. I want to thank you. I know this was a longer episode and certainly a lot of information to digest over the course of an hour. I thank you for joining me. Please remember to head over to my website, khoppepresents.com. That's K-A-Y-H-O-P-P-E presents.com and subscribe so you can get notifications of upcoming podcasts and when they're available. Check out the brain teaser that's out there currently. And thank you so much for joining me. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.